Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Rolling, take one. You're like fluorescent. I am, yeah, I kind of glow. <laughs> so, like an angel, but still glowing. Is it going to be alright? <laughs> I don't know where that came from, it just came out. Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is a podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And on this wonderful episode, our 35th, we'll be calling up Boris Sachs all the way to hell from Israel. We'll also be wading through the slow, murky depths of reciprocity failure. What it is, why we should care, and do we? Apart from that, we've got the answering machine, a zine review, kind of. Uh, so let's get to work. Oh, but first, uh, Vanya? Yes. How the hell are you? Pretty fucking good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had a teeny tiny little trip up to Northern California. Okay. Stayed at an Airbnb, one of my friend's Airbnbs up there. Cool. So I didn't have to see anybody. I stayed away from people. I surfed. I shot some film. And most importantly, I ate lots of delicious, yummy food. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) It was like a birthday trip, wasn't it? Yes. Nice. I celebrated my 38th birthday. You're old now. I know. Oh, no. I'm so happy. (laughs) (laughs) It was really great. It was basically perfect. The perfect amount of people, which was basically just my family. And that's it. Nice. (laughs) I got really lucky, too. Um, There was like a great break in between two storms, and we had several sunny days. Oh, cool. It was just perfect. Beautiful weather, um, not too cold, and... Of course, a bunch of empty beaches, which was kind of what I wanted for my birthday, was kind of emptiness. And that's what I got. So Nice. <laughs> I want emptiness for my birthday. <laughs> I have emptiness every day. I just, I miss like wide open space. I just need that in my life. <laughs> oh, I get that. I think everybody in Los Angeles is going crazy inside. So everybody's outside. Yeah. And more than usual, so it's even like worse <laughs> than it ever has been outside right now. So, um just trying to find a little like slice of space by yourself can be really difficult. Uh yeah. Again, I'm it. pretty happy about it. It wasn't like a, a big photography related trip. It was mostly just like a family trip, but of course I was able to bring some cameras and I did shoot a little, so I will be developing those roles on Dev Party soon. Awesome. We actually will have a, if it all works out, a bonus episode for Patreon users of your, uh, your, one of your, your photography adventures. All right. So enough about that. Yeah. Tell me how you've been since I've been gone. Well, uh, this past weekend, which is, I think, two weekends ago because of time, I wanted to like really badly go out and shoot. And I wanted to put the Chamonix and the tripod away for a day because I've been shooting a lot of that. And I wanted to just do like the crown graphic uh, 4x5 mm. handheld. I wanted to do that around the city. It's not something I really do a lot of. And I was super excited. And so on Saturday, this was supposed to happen. It was supposed to be like just sunny and wonderful. But I woke up to a fog that was so thick that I, I couldn't even see the strip club across the street. <laughs> but after a few hours, which was when we recorded your photo adventure, mm-hmm. uh, the fog lifted and I was able to just get out. And I, I shot with a handheld. I shot maybe 20 or so sheets. A lot of it was x-ray. I think I did 12 x-ray shots. And nice. I'll be developing some of those on Dev Party, on the next Dev Party, if all goes according to plan. And who knows if that's a th- 
a thing. I even shot two color sheets using some weird Kodak internegative film. I think it was 4114 for those who are keeping track. <laughs> uh, the colors on those in ECN2 anyway were just bonkers. I really, yes. oh my God, I showed you the pictures. Oh my gosh, I saw them. They are so amazing. So when when was this made? When did it expire? Expired in probably 94, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got to shoot it at 12 or 25 ISO, which is really tough hand-holding. So it's just a sunny, sunny as hell day, which is what I had. Um, other than that, I released a zine. We'll talk about that later. Sounds like a fulfilling couple weeks. So each episode, we ask listeners to call in to answer a vague or amorphous question that we pose on social media and also at the end of our shows. So they called in this time around, and what was the question they were answering? What is your daily shooter and why? Well, we've got some answers, so why don't we uh, check the answering machine? Alrighty. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey guys, it's Nick with the Analog Experience. Uh, I wasn't gonna say what my daily shooter is because it's just kind of boring, but it's the Canon AE-1. And as for why, well, because it's a Canon AE-1. <laughs> what else do I say about that? That's a good daily shooter. To be honest, I carry around a Canon A1 okay. because I gave my AE1 to Marley. So. Oh, okay. So that's Marley's camera. Yes. Okay, cool. Yes, it is. Cool. Yeah, it's compact. It's easy to carry around. I mean, why not? It's not boring. It's just it's a good camera to have around. Yeah. Hey, Eric and Vanya. Uh, this is Can I Shoot You on Instagram. I shoot with an F6. It basically just works. I can always swap seamlessly between that and my Nikon D750, you know, use the same lenses and shoot in the same way and not worry about what happens. I kind of just trust the camera to take care of things for me if I'm have running and gunning or just blasting through film. At the same time, I can stop, uh, slow down, spot meter, and just, you know, do all the slower things if I need to. Do, have you, do you have a Nikon? I do. Is it an F6? It's not. I think it's just like the FM, the smaller version. I've always wanted like an F series, but just never, never got one. Unfortunately, I like Nikon a lot. I like I, I'm actually new to Canon. The, those two Canons that I just talked about, one was given to me. And then the other one I found like at a St. Vincent de Paul or something. Okay. Uh, those were like the first Canons I've ever had. I've always had Nikon or Minolta my whole life. So yeah, yeah it's kind of weird shooting with something different but it's it's all the same you know i think you just get comfortable with like where settings are like he said he feels like he can trust the camera to do what it needs to do when he's in a rush but he can also do you know fully manual stuff like metering and so that's yeah i mean what really <laughs> what else do you really need it's i i don't know i don't know <laughs> i have no idea <laughs> my daily shooter just depends on my mood and pretty much what I want to carry. Most of the time, it's either a Bessa R with a 35mm f2 Canon lens or a 50mm f1.2 Canon lens. And my other daily camera is a Nikon FM with the 50mm f1.8 pancake lens. Both cameras are sort of sentimental, but they've never let me down and are just a real pleasure to shoot. 
That's what I have. I have a Nikon FM. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I would love to know. Like, it, he said both the cameras are sentimental. I would love to know the like the story behind that. Like, why are they sentimental? Yeah. You know? Well, maybe he'll, like, call in and tell us. I would like to know, too. People knowing, like, that the details and all that of the lenses is really fascinating to me. But when it starts getting into the, the like, just the numbers. I mean, I know what they mean, but my eyes just glaze over. I'm just like, I don't. I don't know. I can't follow you down that road, but I do want to know what the, what the sentimental attachment is. What is your attachment to those cameras? That's what I wanted to know. Hey, Rick and Vanya. This is Justin Gordon in Ashland, Oregon. I've got a Pentax 6x7 that I use almost every day. I used to shoot a lot of 35mm SLR, and I was just kind of shooting from the hip and getting stuff uh, that I wouldn't otherwise get now when I switched to medium format, I found that I was composing a lot more, carrying a light meter and losing a lot of the spontaneity of the old 35 millimeters. So I looked for a camera that that I could kind of have an in, in-camera light meter and just kind of shoot from the hip and not worry so much about light and composition. So Pentax 6x7 is great for that. Thanks for the program, guys. Talk to you later. That's a fascinating way to look at, or I guess to make that transition from 35 to, to, to 120. Yeah. You know, I you do. want something that captures the 35. They were always very separate to me. I guess it's because I, I shot mostly waist level finders, even in 35. So mm-hmm. I never really like, oh, I, I, want, I want the action that I'm getting in 35 to be transferred over to 120. I like the idea though, but is the Pentax yeah. 6.7, that's like the really big ass one, right? It is. It's, it looks like a, like, humongous SLR. Like your hands look so tiny (laughs) holding it. (laughs) Tiny hands or big camera? Ashland, Oregon. They got like dumped on with snow. (laughs) Who are you, Joe Bastardi? I am. (laughs) You're going to hear this from me a lot, but Nikon F2. Um, Why? 100% viewfinder image and the legacy glass that it comes with. A lot of Nikons. Oh, I mean, it, it is. It's like Nikons and Canons. Well, so far, it's Nikons and Canons and the Pentax, of course, and the Besta, I guess. You know, it isn't like everybody has the same camera here, but they, they have the same setup. And I think that's, it's for that for a reason. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. The Ansco Memo is my daily shooter. It's uncoded lens, gives a dreamy image on half frame 35. And yeah, I want the daily images of school during Corona to be special and it works well for that uh, i use bulk color film uh, and it's really nice it wasn't made to shoot color film but it has a very dreamy hazy look that i i like a lot yeah uh, he's calling in again about the ansco memo i know clearly taunting this us fucking camera <laughs> is so cool i know we, we have this really old ad for it that we were gonna post i don't think we did but we should the ansco memo is it was like 35 millimeter film was invented but they didn't know what kind of camera to put it in. So it was just like, mm-hmm. fuck it, it's a box. It's it's a wonderful looking camera. I really... The idea of like bulk 35 in it is like so fascinating to me. <laughs> oh, it is. It really is. I don't know if either of us need another camera at this point, but... I don't think we do, but we <laughs> definitely go down the rabbit hole with this one. The last time he called in, we like had a huge conversation about it. It was like looking up pictures of it. Like, yeah. love it. I love this. Perfect daily shooter. Hi, Eric and Vanya. John Michael's my name. J.M. Mendiza on Instagram. I'm one of these people who don't really have a daily shooter. 
I prefer, if I'm going to go out and take pictures, to do it with intention and pick a camera for that day or that particular purpose. I used to carry around a camera all the time and would grab some shots here and there, but I found myself most of the time either not using it or not being happy with the pictures I got uh, out of it at the end. So it just seemed like a waste of time and carrying around something heavy if I wasn't going to use it. So I've changed my shooting style to only taking a camera along if I know I'm going to use it, and then I pick a camera that suits that purpose. I'm actually surprised we only have one of those. I am too, yeah. This is sort of my answer, (laughs) in a way. I'll get to that. But that's kind of where I am as far as taking cameras with me. I just don't. I'm not that kind of photographer anymore. And I'm really happy that I'm not that kind of photographer anymore. Sometimes I'll see something. I'm like, oh my God, I wish I had a camera. But that's really rare. It it allows me to kind of enjoy or not enjoy the scenery as I go. When I do shoot, it makes it more, I don't know, enjoyable for me, I guess. It kind of, it's a little treat. The camera is the cherry on top of my already wonderful life. (laughs) Yo, what up, my dudes? Tiffin Sinclair here on Instagram. So my daily shooter as of late has been the absolute hef monster that is the Roly 35TE. Note that my camera is the version with the Tessar lens rather than the Sonar lens, and that's because I was in bougie at the time of purchase, so I went with what $3, a loose button, and a stick of gum could buy me, while still being able to afford a roll of HP5. But in all seriousness, this camera is a delight to shoot with. It's about the size of a pack of gum, so I have no reason not to have it on me at all times. The glass on this beast is a Tessar 3.5-40mm lens, which can be stopped down to f22. So all of you can keep your nifty 50s because this girl is in love with her shorty 40. Lastly, this is a zone focus camera, which means you essentially have to guesstimate your distance from the subject. But again, this camera is a treasure trove, and I have never missed focus on a single frame, which is saying a lot when you consider the fact that I was blessed with the wonkiest of vision. All in all, this camera ticks all the check marks in my book. It's unintrusive, pocketable, and a little quirky looking, just like me. Nifty 50. <laughs> Shorty 40. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I can get behind some lens talk. I've shot with one of these once. Yes. And that was your camera. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't hate it, but it was rather small for me. Yeah, it's a tiny little... Tiny little camera. And I've got huge It's a tiny little thing. It's just a tiny little sliver of a camera. It really is. Have you shot more with it than I have, probably? Yeah, I have. And I don't have as much luck as she does. Maybe because I have wonkier vision. (laughs) For the range focus, but same as the Nikonos 5 also and the 3. Those range focus cameras are quite a pain in the butt for me. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not very good at that either. I need at least... I'm an SLR guy. I don't know. I need, But I do, a, a range finder would be fun. You didn't... You like sent it back right away or you gave it to me. You didn't really shoot very much I shot one it. roll through it. I mean, it's a neat camera. It is. It's adorable. Yeah, it is. And shot with it when we were in Kansas too. Oh, that's right. She did. I think she had two. One with color and one with black and white she film. She did. Yeah. Yeah. In her little like... She had a pouch. Dude, she... Ugh. Anne is like amazing, number one. And she had this little pouch with her cameras inside of it, just like hands-free style. So she could just like whip it out whenever she wanted to shoot. And she was like, oh, I'll just have two rollies and I'll have one with color and one with black and white. (laughs) It's amazing. It is. Well, I guess we we kind of beat around the bush long enough. So why don't we answer this 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 question here? Why don't we answer this? Sure. Okay, you go first. 
I'm going to say the RB67. Yeah. It's been doing me good lately. From traveling landscapes to photo shoots on the beach, the Mamiya RB67 is always on the list of cameras to bring. It basically fucking rules. <laughs> so recently I had a situation where I wanted to do some work for the podcast and I was also trying to take a picture on the edge of a cliff. This was the uh, photo that you were doing for the podcast. This was the the bonus episode photo. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So if you're lucky, you might be able to hear some of my audio if it's salvageable. I hope it is. <laughs> so long story long, I was trying to get the shot on basically top of a mountain that looked down into the ocean. And it was really hard to focus. I had the Intrepid and a shutter release cable and a tripod and basically everything that could have went wrong went wrong. You didn't lose my camera, did you? <laughs> struggling oh no so hard because the the first thing i thought was like this camera is going to tumble down into the ocean and then i have to like explain to eric that like his camera is forever gone now i haven't actually seen the intrepid since since this trip it felt like it was going to yeah yeah i've been there <laughs> i've literally been there yeah exactly <laughs> and what camera almost fell off the cliff that was the Shamani, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So this is like, I don't know what we were thinking, but I ended up not losing the camera. I don't know if I got any good shots with the Intrepid. We will find out we will. shortly. <laughs> but what I ended up doing is taking some backup shots with the RB67. Yeah. And putting all that stuff away and then just like having the RB around my neck and just waist level like focusing and shooting. And I was like, oh, this is like a million times easier. <laughs> Some places, I just don't think it's worth going through the hassle of like getting a tripod out and all this nonsense. Honestly, sometimes it's good just to have your daily shooter. And the RB67 is just that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's heavy enough. It's fucking heavy, but it's heavy enough yeah, to is. give you a steady shot at a low shutter speed. Yes. It's a big camera, but it's not like, you know, you got to have a backpack for it or anything. No. It's just a wonderful camera. It really is. Okay. So that's... I think my answer. Okay. That's a great answer. <laughs> so how about you? What do you got? You know, as we were saying earlier, I don't really carry a camera around with me and I'm not that kind of photographer. So what might pass lately as my daily shooter is the camera that I've been taking out with me every time I've gone out this winter. And that is the Chamonix F4 or 5 or whatever the fuck they're calling it. I've been out almost every week in this winter with it. And I've, I've only brought this camera. I, I don't have a compact 35 for backup shots and i didn't bring the rb67 and so it's just me and this big dumb camera on a big dumb tripod shooting in a big dumb wet seattle basically and so the why is kind of the, the second part of this and and first i'm doing this to get used to the camera and to feel connected with it and we've talked about this quite a bit before so i'm not going to go on about it but second and probably most importantly i am really really loving this i love the idea that if i blow a shot and i've blown quite a few shots i don't have a backup. I like that. But what I like even more about this is that when I nail a shot, I nail it not because of luck, but I was able to figure this out, figure out the scene and the emulsion and the camera. And I've nailed it because of fucking skill. And that's, <laughs> and that's true. And it sounds maybe a little egotistical and, and maybe it is, but honestly, I don't nail a ton of shots. But when I do, I know that I'm going to nail it. And that's why I like this camera because it gives me that. So I'm basically, I'm, I'm living or dying by the sword, which is incredibly dramatic, which is me sometimes. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> no comment. Okay. <laughs> So this episode, we've got some listener mail. Well, actually, it's a non-listener mail. Okay. 
It's from Brian, who does not listen to our podcast. No, he does not. <laughs> I will read his letter. Hey, Eric and Vanya. My name is Brian. And while I don't listen to your podcast, I feel as though I do. See, my roommate, Trisha, is a huge fan of your podcast. She even recently received a book in the mail from Vanya. And which book was that, Vanya? It was the Julia Tool book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Warrior Women of the Plains. Warriors and Women of the Plains. Yeah. 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 So anyway, she listens to all of your shows and proceeds to tell me all about them. She especially gets excited when you guys have your dev parties. She tells me how she loves when you guys say, I see images. And that's... (laughs) That's me. (laughs) (laughs) I got images. (laughs) <laughs> that is me. It's, it's very much you. <laughs> what am I supposed to say? I don't know. I've ne- I've never said anything before. When you were, when we started when we started developing together, you're like, ah, do you have negatives? I see negatives. Do you have images? It's <laughs> like, a weird way to put it, but yes, I do. <laughs> so <sighs> continuing. Anyway. The truth is that she's a big fan of of photography and loves your podcast. However, she is very timid and shy when it comes to shooting her own work. A lot of the time is spent talking about what she wants to shoot, but never really doing it. I do that all the time. Yeah, that's (laughs) how I spend most of my days. Yes, I can relate it's to this. It's like you're kind of like getting pumped on your own a little bit. That has a Yeah, I think you can really turn that. No, I think you're right. You can really turn that like talking about things you want to shoot into really like, giving yourself a pep talk to, to getting yourself worked up to shoot that. Mm-hmm. So he continues. I was just hoping maybe you guys could shout her out and give her a little push on one of your up- upcoming episodes. And this is what we're doing here. I know it would really make her day. Well, I hope so, but... <laughs> She's always put her interest on the back burner and procrastinates a lot. I feel she just needs a kick in the butt. And Brian, you know, we all need that. Uh, I don't know how many back burners I could possibly have. <laughs> I've got a lot of back burners. I've, I do too. Yeah. I have way more back burners than front burners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you need, you need to, I don't know what the fuck we're saying here. I see negatives. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I- <laughs> I'm like so embarrassed now. <laughs> I see images. <laughs> uh, okay. And he concludes, she shoots with a digital Pentax, but has recently picked up a film Pentax K1000 and a medium format Bronica. Now, quick interjection, the Pentax K1000 is a camera on which I learned most my dad's camera. And the medium format Bronica is the camera that I bought was shipped here by somebody who had no clue how to ship cameras, and the USPS fucked it up. And it was <laughs> horrible. I got a refund, but what I didn't get is a fucking Bronica. I know. You were so, you are like this close. Like, it, it was in your hands. It was in my hands, and it was just beat out of hell. The camera was literally dented, and, like, the, the lens was stuck in, and the, the film advance was, like, was, was bent at a weird angle. Was not happy. Anyway, she wants to develop her own film, but doesn't know where to start. So he's asking us to give her some encouragement. And honestly, sometimes you just have to do things. Yeah. And there isn't any more encouragement that you can get than than that. You're there. You've got two amazing cameras. You've got the Pentax K1000, which really, honestly, shame on all of our listeners for not having that as your daily shooter. <laughs> and you've got a Bronica. And I don't know what Bronica you have. I'm assuming it's the one that I wanted, and, and, and I'm bitter about that. <laughs> Also, if it is the S2A, don't tell me. Just shoot it. Just go out and shoot. 
And as far as developing your own film, that is something that probably needs a little more practical encouragement than just do it, because there is more to it than just do it. But you listen to our dev parties, so you know what goes into it. We don't, we do edit, but we don't edit all that much. And maybe we need to like do a basic dev party at some point. Like, hey, you've never developed film before. Let's let's do this. Let's let's show you what you're what we're what to do rather than you know starting with you know hey we're pouring out our pre wash. Maybe we need to do like a real basic. Um, here's how to do it episode, and maybe we will. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be a good idea. I know that when I started re like developing again, I hadn't done it since college and high school. Yeah. And I remember I'm like, God, I like can probably do this, but it's been a minute. Yeah. But I remember thinking like, I could fucking do this. Just do it. Yeah. You know? And same with color. Like I remember being at like camera stores and they're like, oh, it's just like temperature and it's, you know, it's so hard. It's difficult to like nail. And then just in my mind, like, just fucking do it. Just do it. What, yeah. what, what am I waiting for? Because some guy told me that it's too hard to do. No way. You're yeah. doing it. Exactly. Sometimes you got to just do it. And sometimes you got to fail and do it. So then you learn the right way to do it. And I do that basically on almost every single dev party. <laughs> <laughs> on the last one, we both did. <laughs> Yeah, we, I know. I was thinking that. I was like, it's been a while since we did a big fuck up and yeah. we really- We fucked up big, know? yeah. But it's important to like share those because, hey, like everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has failures. Yeah. It's just part of this hobby, this photography in general, film photography. It's just not all easy. It's not. <laughs> and if people say it is, it's they're lying to you. There's some difficulty to it. But what's nice about developing your own film is that it is- is a scientific chemical reaction thing. It isn't really an art. You you have your film, you've got your developer, you have the exact amount of developer in the exact amount of water, you develop it for an exact amount of time, and you get images. It's just how it works. Now, it doesn't always work that way because we are human and fail, but those failures generally are human failures and not chemical failures. So if you can follow a recipe, you can develop film. Yeah. And even if you can't follow a recipe, such as Vanya, you can yep. develop film. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> I do not like to read at all. <laughs> so, hey, co-host a podcast. <laughs> On this episode, we'll be giving a call to Orr Sachs, a film photographer and photography teacher. We gushed about his zine, Summer Kingdom, a few episodes ago and just had to get him on. He came back to film photography about four years ago and is doing some amazing large format work. So let's give him a call. Hello. 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 Okay, so you can you read me? Hear me? Is that okay? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let me adjust some stuff here. Uh, speak again, please. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Great. <laughs> what do people do for like the morning breakfast? Are you guys like coffee? Drinkers, tea drinkers, you have something specific you do? At the moment, we have a, a, a eight-month-year-old baby, me and my spouse. Wow, congratulations. We split the week. I, I, I work half the week, and she works the other half. And once the, the other person is at work, the other person is with the baby. So if I go to work the, at the school where I teach, I get up. When she gets up, I think it's like 5 a.m., which is a bit 
harsh. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> like I, I get to spend time with her until seven, and then uh, my spouse wakes up, and then she takes her, and then. I eat and go to school. The eating and drinking part is very short, and the <laughs> baby taking care part is very long. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I'm, I, I wear this hat because I haven't uh, taken a, a haircut in like two months. Okay. Because the, the, the day I was supposed to get a haircut, I know you didn't ask, but I'm going to tell no, you. No, tell. Yeah. The, day I, the day I was planning to get my haircut, a, a very good friend of mine who, who had COVID uh, spent time with us, so we had to go into an isolation. Oh, oh yeah. Which is a thing in Israel. So mm-hmm. we were 10 days in isolation. And then uh, my spouse got COVID. So oh, that's, wow. that's, that's another 10 days. And then our baby got COVID. Wow. And now I got COVID. So No. <laughs> Really? So, so my hair looks like this. Uh, <laughs> yes. So I have to put this. That's the most. That's the most uh, like horrible thing that happened in COVID. This hair. So. Uh, okay. Well, that's not too bad. Uh, so you're, you're feeling okay, okay now. Uh, there were like three or four days of bad headaches. Okay. Uh, but white male, so every headache feels like a bit of a giving birth. <laughs> Uh, and actually, yesterday I lost my uh, my ability to to smell things. Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, so the taste, right? Too. Uh, yeah, but it really helps when I'm swiping like poop for the baby. It's like <laughs> you're like I can do this all day now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I I try to see like good things. Yeah, positive. <laughs> yes. Um, so other than that, I'm okay. Hopefully that in, in a week I will leave the isolation and like be able to get a haircut, which is my main concern at the moment. <laughs> so we'll start with, with kind of the obvious. You are a film shooter living in Israel. Yes. Yes. Uh, so what's the film photography community like in Israel? So I've started shooting film uh, four years ago. Mm-hmm. Actually, when I was uh, 15, uh, I, when I only started in, in photography, I learned with like with an SLR, like an old Canon EOS. Mm-hmm. And for about three years, I've only shot film. And we had like uh, labs everywhere and like in the city. And I could get like my, my role like developed in 30 minutes. Oh, yeah. And then came digital. And that was like... I want to say like 15 years ago. Okay. When I came back to film four years ago, I had no idea that things have changed. And I rapidly understood there was like three labs only in Tel Aviv, which is like, it's like in the center of, of Israel. And there are three labs which are very, very good and very, very cheap. Oh, nice. I understand like the rest of the world. And another big thing that is happening is that we have a very, very, very um, live community on Facebook, which mm. is Facebook. Uh, we have the, this uh, group called the Dark Room, mm. but in Hebrew. So yeah. it's called in Hebrew, Cheder Choshech, which okay. is the Dark Room. The Dark Room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they're like 6,000. 6,000. Oh, wow. 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 Yeah, people on it. Yeah. And, wow. and, and, yeah, and people shoot a lot of film. And the DIY 
thing like doing your film at home, uh, especially color, we, we don't tend to do that. It's much more uh, gentle with a film that, you, that is uh, not expired. Okay. So I see you guys doing like expired film at yeah, 41. I'm pretty envious because there's a lot of color shifts and twists and, and, and that's cool. But when you, with fresh film, it's much more gentle. Yeah. It's pretty alive. I have a lot of friends from that community, which we, we got together in that way. And we, we sometimes meet and mm. then take photos together and like check up, which is really, really nice. Yeah. I mean, so, so can you explain, is it difficult to find film? Um, you said you had a couple labs there, so they develop film. Do they also have um, different kinds of emulsions you can like buy? Yeah, like the chemicals too. How's that? So we have like three or four very big uh, labs, and they work really fast. Like they can get your film in 24 hours wow. and, ma- and mail it to you, which is really, really nice. Uh, and they have film emulsions and, and all that. It's pretty expensive. Yeah. Uh, sadly, it's cheaper for me to order from B&H, wait a week and get my film. It saves like 10%. Wow. It really does cut down on the prices. Yeah. Uh, but you can get film only in Tel Aviv because, for example, I live like two hours away mm-hmm. and it's a drag. That's why I started doing uh, my own development. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they, they do work a lot. Like it's very, very active labs for the four of them. Yeah. Do they, they sell chemicals as well, like developers and fixers? and Not so much. Okay. <laughs> they, they sell like D76. Okay. Uh, but chemical-wise, we have this very nice guy. There's only one. His name is David. Okay. And he has like a, a shop in his house. Like all <laughs> nice. his house is full of chemicals. And he sends it out uh, by mail. Oh, that's great. He's really, really nice. <laughs> uh, so like 90% of the chemicals from Israel, we get from David. Oh, <laughs> Thanks, <that's>, David. Yeah, <laughs> Shout keeping out the to dream David. alive. <laughs> so, you're also a photography teacher. Has coming back to film changed the way that you teach photography to your students? Yes, yes, and again, I will say yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I've been a photography teacher for the past eight years. Wow, nice. Uh, Yes, and four years ago when I started film, I loved it so much that I, I, I decided I have to give it as a gift to my students. And an interesting thing that you can see is like there's a very direct place where I'm at and where my students at. So for the first year, I only did like 35 millimeter and like C41 at the lab. Mm-hmm. So our year project was uh, each student got like a, a role. And they shot it, and then we sent it out to develop it, and and they liked it. And a year after, I started uh, developing at home, 35 uh, black and white. Mm -hmm. So that year, we got like five or six like Pedersen tanks, and we bought like 50 rolls of Fomapan 100. And that year they started developing it and scanning it. And the year after I started printing at home. Oh. So we got like six enlargers and we built up a dark room. Yeah. Wow. So that was like a big step. <laughs> and now we actually have a dark room, which, which is really, really nice. Yeah. And another thing that they treated as norm which I really like that. I have this story. I have this student and she came up to me two weeks ago and she said, or I have this crazy thing to tell you. I said, okay, what is it? I have this friend which shoots film and then she sends it to a lab and the lab scans it 
and she she doesn't know which chemicals go where, and then just she gets it on her email. What's up with that? That's crazy. <laughs> and she's like, no, but you don't get your hands dirty, and you don't understand, and the fixer and the developer and the HC110. Yeah, yeah, you made my day with that story. She, she, yeah, yes. she really likes my course, that girl, so that's nice. You're teaching them right. <laughs> Most people probably know you uh, through Instagram and obviously uh, through your zine. Um, yeah. It's gotten a lot of really good reviews, so let's talk about it a little bit. It seems to have all been shot in a day or two with the same people showing up kind of throughout the whole thing. So where did you shoot this and who are these people? <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so uh sadly eric you couldn't have got it more wrong oh, but no. that's okay <laughs> during the summer time we took a, a maternity leave i think it's called mm-hmm. and i put her like on me with like a, a thing i don't know how it's called like a carrier yeah okay yeah. Mm-hmm. and i would walk around uh, i live in a kibbutz which is like a very small settlement mm-hmm. and it's covered with fields so I would walk around with her every day for like two two hours, like an hour at morning, an hour in the evening. Okay. And during one of my trips, I reached this place, which had a really nice like overview of the Sea of Galilee. Mm-hmm. And I met this guy there, which is really, really nice. His name is Yaniv. And it's like the first time I met someone like after like three or four weeks walking in the fields like daily. Yeah. And he said, yeah, listen, uh, a lot of more people would come here because we live here during the summer, mm. like off-grid style. And we work in agriculture, like we pick in the nearby fields, like in the mango fields. Oh. And we actually live here for like three months off the land, like off-grid, no water, no running water, no electricity. Wow. Uh, we just live here. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And I said, wow, as well. <laughs> Yeah, this is awesome. Uh, so the first time I saw this guy, I was like, just like with a point and shoot, and it was so nice. So I said, you should sure take my picture, no, no problem. Mm-hmm. And I had like a really good connection with him. Yeah. So I came back like the next day and the next day and the next day. And actually after two weeks, a lot of new people started arriving. Hmm. And during those two weeks, I would come every time with a different camera. And during the course of the three months i visited these guys for like uh, three or four times a week and at at first i only did portraits because i love portraits and that's like my my forte and my specialty Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but during that time i really i heard a lot uh, your podcast and a lot of the zine talk and i felt like maybe this could be that zine they're talking about (laughs) and i think that after like a month and a half of shooting these guys like three or four rolls a week i said let's turn it into a zine and the moment i did that i understood that I can't do only portraits and I need to like tell the entire story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I started looking for details and started like doing like very daily things and not, not so much as staging them, mm-hmm. like looking for small things, like uh, all, all the beers that they drank yeah. and where they slept, them playing music, a lot of like the life. Because mm-hmm. I thought that in, when you read a book, you don't only read like about the, the heroes or, or or the characters. You need like a very the whole surroundings. Yeah, mm-hmm. I spent like a month and a half like shooting all around, which really changed the way I shoot because I came like for different times, like during sunset and then during sundown and at night, and I spent much more time there because I I started looking for different things. I didn't go for like 
the nice light and, and the portrait and the classic like very soft light mm-hmm. and then the work changed a lot mm-hmm. uh, and actually by thinking as a zine I think it really made it like a real body of work one of the most striking things about your zine is how you paired the photos uh, with each other. It does tell a story. There is like some portraits, but there are other pieces to that, like you were trying to tell a story. So can you explain the beginning and like how you decided to go? So actually a lot, a lot of time. I think I, I reordered it like four times. Mm. And I actually did try to tell a story here. So at first, I tried like, this is the surrounding. So this is the scene, like with with no people around and like rocks. And yeah, and, and then you can see the, the, the nature and the surrounding and slowly, I like the and this is what they do. And, they, and, and last, I, I approach the people like this is the people. So that's what I do. I talk to people. I talk to, to, to strangers. And it's something that I have been working on a lot, mm-hmm. especially when I started film photography. It was during the summer and I didn't have any money to go like on a vacation. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, my vacation is to, to take like 50 rolls of people every day. I would go to the beach near my house and like take photos of people every day and ask and ask and ask and ask. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And get a lot of no's. Like at the, at the start, I had I had got like eighty percent nose, and when the summer ended, it was like fifty percent. Oh, which is very good. Yeah, I think that every no is hard to get, but I think that that that's, that's a nice change. Yeah, and I think I learned how to approach people and what distance should I be standing and what to say and what not to mm. say and yeah. about like my my facial expression and and I understood that what I wear. It has a lot to do with it. And, and like, if I hold the camera, which camera? So a lot of these things really changed the, the way I approach people. Mm-hmm. And really made this project what it is. Like, I spent with these people uh, three months. Mm-hmm. It's true that I, I brought a camera every time. But if you spend with, with a person, like, 40 minutes a day, playing, drinking, eating, like, just sitting there and, like, chatting with them it really changes like the entire atmosphere of what it is to take a photo oh sure yeah and, and that's what i go for i don't go for the smile it's mm-hmm. like relax your face uh, close your eyes and then i linger in it uh, enough until i get what i want like th- th- that certain expression but uh, i can ask for a person to stand in front of the camera for like two minutes Mm. And when he gets like tired of it, and it's like, okay, take the picture, and then and then I get it. <laughs> nice. So so that that the, that's my secret recipe. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Oh, that's insane. <laughs> I like that a lot. So, what do they do out of season? I'm I'm just getting to know that because these guys they live off grid all the time, and during the winter they do about the same but they reside different places and i actually started visiting them where they are mm-hmm. like one of them lives in a train cart okay yeah, yeah. Uh, and one of them lives in a cave <laughs> wow really? yeah yeah i actually visited the cave it was unreal wow <laughs> 
I guess that that kind of brings us all the way through to, with the the established questions. Oh no! You, oh no! Except for the answering machine question. What what is your what is your daily shooter and why? I have been thinking like the entire week. What should I answer? And and actually, I don't really shoot daily. Okay. When I take photos, I I just pop in a film. I do it. It's really nice. Uh, Hasselblad. Yeah. Mm. So I, I do it with that. And this very, very petite. Oh, yo, yo. This point and shoot. Yeah. It looks like trash. It's amazing. <laughs> it's better than the Yashica and the Mew and the. It's amazing. Nice. And yes, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a gem. So that, <laughs> these are my uh, daily shooters. And so awesome. for next episode's answering machine question, yeah. uh, it is what is the most important thing for you to remember? When you're shooting, so I think the first thing uh, is where where's the best light and where I should be standing. Mm, okay. So I keep looking for that all the time. And the second thing is that uh, don't don't click right away. Like take your time, mm-hmm. wait for it. Because seeing I do take mainly photos of people, mm-hmm. I get very excited at first. Okay, this this great picture and this great light and and this wonderful composition and everything. And this person said yes, and everything is correct. Just wait for it, like wait till till it's right. Yeah. Like so keep reminding me that again and again when I take photos, and like in a rush or like in a, in a, like the first photo is a fluke because I didn't wait for it. I got too excited. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that's my answer. Perfect. I think it's good. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for yeah, coming on. Thank you. It was this like is- a. <laughs> I had such a good time. This is really fun. <laughs> yes. Like a fake reunion because we never went to high school together. But <laughs> we did. One last thing. Yes. Uh, like I think three months ago, I, I I don't remember who I sent this message that the two of you were in my dream. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for not uh, blocking me on, <laughs> on Instagram. Because oh, my spouse said, don't send it. It's freaky. <laughs> It's too much. <laughs> this is not normal. You don't know these people. But I said, they will understand. They're film people. No, it's, it's a dream. <laughs> we live for freaky. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> okay. Of course. <laughs> so thank you very much, guys. Oh, thank yes. you so much. This has been a blast. <laughs> so uh, have a good night. Oh, you too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. To expose film, we need light. Not only that, we need a specific amount of light. Depending on the film speed, the ISO of the film, 50 ISO film is slower than 400 ISO film and thus needs more light. 1600 ISO film is super fast and hardly needs any at all. But what's really handy is that any given 100 ISO emulsion, and that's a fancy way of saying film, needs the exact same amount of light, or photons, as every single other 100 ISO emulsion. The same goes for any 400 ISO film, or 50 ISO film. This means that the lowly Fomapan 400, though cheap as dirt and just as grainy, needs the exact same amount of photons as Fuji Pro 400H, which is fetching upwards of $30 a roll right now for some reason. This means on a beautiful sunny 16 sort of day, a 100 ISO emulsion will expose the same amount at f16 and 1 100th of a second as it would if you shot it at f8 and 1 500th of a second, or at f45 at 1 15th 
length of a second. The photos would look different, of course. The depth of field will vary depending upon the aperture settings, but that's something we're not talking about, so we're going to stop talking about it. Now, some photographers might decide to shoot certain emulsions at speeds not printed on their boxes. This is called pushing or pulling, and we're not talking about that either. We're also not talking about how some photographers insist that the ISO of some emulsions is wrong. A lot of that is placebic, and all of it is subjective. Basically, every 100 ISO film requires the same light to get a proper exposure as every other 100 ISO film. This is true across every film speed there is, and it's useful. Sure it is, but there is a catch. This ISO rule only applies under normal shooting conditions. And what are normal shooting conditions? Well, we're sure that the ISO people, the International Standards Organization, has defined those precisely. But reading the source material costs money, and that's annoying. So let's just say that normal is whatever you can handhold if you've got an incredibly steady hand say as slow as one-tenth of a second. Remember how we said that a roll of 400 ISO film needed the same amount of light as every single other roll of 400 ISO, regardless of brand or type? That only applies to normal shooting conditions, and what that means is that outside of those conditions, all bets are off. While in normal shooting conditions, all films of the same speeds need the same amount of light, nearly the opposite is true outside of those conditions. In those extreme conditions, one emulsion might need a lot more light than another. But why? Let's try to wrap our heads around this before explaining why this occurs. Leaving behind the sunny 16 sort of day, let's move inside where it's warm and cozy and nothing can ever go wrong. Inside, it's dim and wonderful, but taking a picture without a flash is troublesome. So let's make it even more troublesome. Let's take a moody as fuck portrait by candlelight using 100 ISO film for some reason. If you've got a fast lens with an aperture of f1.2, you can probably get away without worrying about whatever it is we're talking about. Since candlelight is dim, you'll need a shutter speed of 1 8th of a second. But maybe you don't have a fast lens, or maybe you just want things nice and crispy with everything in focus. For that, you'll want an aperture of f16. But with a smaller aperture hole, you'll need the shutter to be opened longer to allow a proper amount of photons to hit the film. In this case, at f16, you'll have a shutter speed of 30 seconds, because math. If you take the shot, it will be underexposed, even though mathematically it should be exposed every bit as well as the one shot at 1 8th of a second. Reciprocity is the reciprocal relationship between various aperture and shutter speed combinations, just like we've been talking about. When you're outside of these normal shooting conditions, that relationship fails. This is called reciprocity failure. And let's take a quick jog through the history of reciprocity failure. Reciprocity failure has probably been an issue since Joseph Niesif Niepce invented photography in 1826. Though in the 1860s, chemists specializing in photosensitive materials began to study reciprocity, the failure of this principle wasn't really considered until the 1890s. That's where German physicist and astronomer Karl Schwarzschild stepped in. And though the technical term for reciprocity failure still bears his name, the Schwarzschild effect, his equations were disputed not 10 years later and again 10 years after that, and probably again. It seems like everyone knew there was something, but pinning it down wasn't possible. Then there was a paper delivered in 1934 by doctors Lloyd A. Jones and Julian H. Webb called Reciprocity Failure and Photographic Exposure. While we don't have access to that paper, it seems to have been about temperature involving motion picture film. Over the next couple decades, the idea seemed to take shape in the general photography community, but much of it was geared towards high-speed flash photography. Some papers Papers were specific to color photography, while others focused on developing your film differently for high-speed shots. Now, you might remember ace columnist Les Sipes of the Oakland Tribune's Camera Click column. We heard from him in the episode about the history of slide film processing, and boy wasn't that riveting. In his November 23, 1958 column, Les had a thing or two to say about it. 
Reciprocity in photography has nothing to do with PTA lunches or foreign trade agreements. It's a term rather glibly used on many occasions, but not so generally understood by the average photo fan. Less than basically explained it, and probably better than we did, but he concludes, In the vast majority of conditions, you don't have to worry your pretty little head about it. But at the extreme ends of the exposure scale, the film emulsion doesn't react as rapidly in proportion to the broad median range of exposures. He also noted that color film manufacturers had recently started offering color negative materials specifically designed to compensate for the color shifts that might occur. This is an issue that we're not going to dig too deep into, but essentially by the late 50s, your basic amateur photographer was clued into the idea of reciprocity failure, many because of columnists like Les Sipes. You're welcome. Prior to the internet, this information seemed to be really difficult to come by. We've shot a lot of expired film, and much of the old packs and rolls came with data sheets. These sheets came with a ton of information, like how to best shoot the film, how to use filter factors to calculate when photographing with filters, mathematical equations for flash photography, and even the final of details on how to develop, fix, and wash. And even, but the calculations for reciprocity failure were usually nowhere to be seen. We found one mention of it on a 1977 data sheet for Kodak Ektapan 4x5 sheet film. It gave a chart and everything. It even came with tips on how to develop it should you take long exposures. Neat! In the 90s, Agva put a similar chart with some of their film. I have one for the Agva Color XRS 400, but we're sure it came with at least a few others, though oddly not their professional pan films. Most of the photographer's data on this came from personal testing, and while companies are now more on board with publishing the reciprocity failure data, much of the information out there on the internet is from testing. And again, that can fall into the placebic and subjective categories, so let's move on. So why the hell does this happen? Well, because of the different chemical makeup of each emulsion, each emulsion will behave differently under long exposures. The same is true for super fast exposures, but we're not going to talk about that now or probably ever. Basically, film lives in the dark. When the shutter opens and the photons hit the film, they chemically change the emulsion, leaving essentially an impression in the emulsion. But when it's dark, fewer and fewer photons are available to make this impression. Because of this, the emulsion sort of heals itself, undoing some of the changes. And because of this, more light than the ISO originally predicted is needed to properly expose the film. This means that the effective ISO, though it's probably better to say effective film speed than ISO, but whatever, has to be revised. And this is no simple task. The reciprocity failure rate for each emulsion is different. That's right, remember when every film used to be the same? Well, now every film is different, and each has a different starting point on where that failure kicks in. You see, the one-tenth of a second thing, that was just kind of a ballpark figure. And normally you can get away with about a second of exposure before having to worry about anything involving reciprocity failure. This means that HP5 has a different reciprocity failure point and rate than Tmax 400, which has a different point and rate than Portra 400. How about Fujiakros? Its reciprocity didn't fail until around the two-minute mark, making it the darling of pinholers. To add to this madness, it's not as simple as doubling or tripling the exposure. There's an ever-widening chasm between the mathematically predicted shutter speed and the speed actually needed to properly expose the film in low light. Essentially, the longer the exposure, the much longer the exposure needs to be. With this vagueness in mind, each film manufacturer has decided upon different ways of telling us how much the long exposure needs to be. For instance, Ilford has decided to make you do it your own damn self by giving you a story problem to solve using mathematical factors and a scientific calculator. Let's take HP5 for example. It's a wonderful low-light film with a reciprocity failure factor of 1.31. So if your meter is telling you that you need an exposure of 10 seconds, you have to adjust that by a factor of 1.31. On a calculator, say the Texas Instruments TI-30, you'd enter 10, then push the XY exponent button, and enter 
1.31. Then hit equals and you've got your shutter speed, a little over 20 seconds. In this case, and in only this case because each case is different, that's an entire stop. Other manufacturers like Fomapan toss out a few examples and leave you to figure out the rest on your own. They tell you the adjusted time for one second, for 10 seconds, and for 100 seconds, which are incidentally 2 seconds, 80 seconds, and 1600 seconds respectively. If you have to figure out any other times, well, you're just going to have to shut up and deal with it. This is somehow still more helpful than Kodak, who tells you the number of stops you'll need to adjust, again for 1, 10, and 100 seconds. For Tmax 100, that's 1 third, 1 half, and 1 stop respectively. Fuji does a similar thing with their emulsions, so happy mathing. Regardless of what the companies say or don't say, in the end, it's up to the photographer. Unfortunately, or fortunately, if you're into this kind of self-flagellation, a lot of testing might be required to dial you in to the sweet spot. But if you don't want to do all that research and mathing yourself, and honestly, who could blame you, there are a number of apps to help you out. For Android users, there's Reciprocity and Exposure Assistant, while Apple's got a few like FilmTimer, LightMe, and Reciprocity Plus. Essentially, they are crowdsourced databanks with various emulsions and an automatic calculator. You just select your emulsion, enter the exposure time suggested by your light meter, and it spits it out. But I don't have plans to become a night photographer. You so cleverly say. Why is this even a little important to me? Well, first, learning stuff is fun, and I'm betting most of you agree. Otherwise, you wouldn't have made it this far into a feature about reciprocity failure. Second, shooting at slower speeds opens you up to other situations. Maybe you don't usually use a tripod or shoot at dawn or at dusk. Maybe you really love Ilford Pan F50, but just can't handhold it unless it's a big, dumb, sunny day. But maybe you want to shoot Foma Pan 100 under an underpass on a rainy winter day in Seattle. That couldn't be a problem, right? Fomapan 100 is a 100 ISO film. But let's throw in some other bullshit just for fun. First, how about a yellow filter and the idea of shooting it at f64? Well, that would give you a tripod situation where there might not have been one before. And let's make the lens super slow, say f5.6. After metering, you know that you can shoot it at f5.6 with a shutter speed of 1 15th of a second. This would give you great shadow detail, but still keep things a bit dark and spooky. It might also give you a shallow depth of field where things can be a little bit blurry. Once the shot is shot, you want to get one with everything all crispy. So f64 it is. Adjusting the shutter speed to match it would give you an 8 second exposure. But hold on there, partner. 8 seconds is way longer than 1 second. And remember, for anything longer than a second, reciprocity failure needs to at least be considered. But Eric didn't consider it. You knew we were talking about Eric, right? He didn't consider it, shot it at eight seconds, but look at it. It's all muddy. There's some shadow detail, but there's nothing compared to the first shot. But if you look at FOMA's data sheet for FOMAPAN 100, when your meter says to shoot it at 10 seconds, you should really be shooting it at 80. And since 8 seconds is super close to 10 seconds, I probably should have shot it a little less than a minute, technically 56 seconds, because again, math. Now, that amount of time, 80 seconds, does seem pretty excessive. That's nearly three and a half more stops exposure than the first shot. And that's the problem. Reciprocity failure doesn't just live in the emulsion, it lives in your head. Now, film manufacturers used to insist that you also compensate in your development. FOMA doesn't suggest that, but I'm betting that you might want to try something called pool processing. That is, processing for less time than normal. This is so you don't blow the hell out of your highlights. You could probably also agitate less, but all this will change depending on the developer and emulsion combo. Have fun testing. And that's the whole point of this. Fun. This shouldn't be a pain in the ass. It should be enjoyable. 
Trying to solve problems and find new and clever ways to make things work is one of the things I love about film photography. Don't get me wrong, it's also one of the things I hate about it. But at the very least, it's something new to know, something to consider, and something to endlessly debate on internet message boards filled with jaded old dudes. And really, isn't that what film photography is all about? Each episode, we both like to uh, share the zines that we've gotten recently with you. We like to do a little bit of a zine review, and uh, we hit maybe a little bit of a dry spell with some zines. We don't really have any to review right now, but Vanya, I'm seeing you over there looking at a zine. Uh, it looks vaguely familiar. What uh, What are you holding? Yeah, there's a snail on the cover. It's your zine in this land, volume one, number two. How about that? Ooh, also... Can I say something? Can if you need to. If people are paying attention, if you get all of them, mm-hmm. the back cover will make a picture. Yeah, well. Do you know how I know this? How do you know this? Because I told you to do that. That was your idea. I don't know. Was it my idea? I don't know I think if it, it was. was. <laughs> I remember it, that uh, bubblegum cards from the 80s did that. Yeah. Like, there were sticker cards in the packs. If you put the sticker cards. Yeah, garbage pal kids, right? They did that too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all good things come with secret messages, right? So in this land, you have a little bit of some different pictures this time around. Mr. I don't ever go to the ocean went to the ocean. Yeah, it's very rare to catch me at the ocean. It had been three or four years, maybe, maybe a little longer. You talk a lot about how you don't go to the ocean and you don't know how to shoot it. I don't. But I'm looking in here and it's looking like you know how to shoot the ocean. Well, it's looking like I took so many pictures that I got some good ones. Law of averages being what it is, but thank you. Can I tell you what, which one is my favorite? You can, please do. Oh, well, this is an audio podcast, so you might want to explain <laughs> Okay. Well, I was showing him first. It's by the ocean. What is it called? Golden? Gold Bluff Beach. That's in Humboldt County. Mm -hmm. And you can't actually see the ocean, but I know it's there because I see some misty over on the left. And it looks like you shot this with the Mamiya RB67 and Fomapan 400. Yes. There is kind of a prairie grass field in the front, a little foxtail sticking up. And then there's like a little bit of the cliffside you can see where there's no trees and it's glowing almost. Same as the foxtails. Now, do you remember what happened right before I shot that photo? The light came out. I was like, you know, kind of ready to go back to the campsite and just kind of mellow out. But I wanted to see the ocean. And so it was kind of gray and overcast, and I was walking from the canyon past these foxtails, and the sun came out and just hit the the bluffs at the same time as it hit the foxtails. And I was like, holy shit. And I grabbed my camera, the RB67 that was around my neck, and I quick focused, you know, metered, I don't, just metered in my head, and took the picture. And as soon as I took the picture, the sun went behind a cloud and didn't come out again. So this was it. It's incredible. It's one of my favorite shots. Thank you. This scene is representative of the week-long, or eight days, I guess, that I did to Oregon and California. I've not done a zine that's just specifically about a trip before, like this, a short trip especially. And I wasn't really planning on doing this. It just kind of came out of nowhere. I had a lot of the photos, and I hadn't shared many of them on social media. And I thought, well, hey, this is something I could really do right now. And I did it. And this is the new zine. I'm, I'm really thrilled with it. It's one of my favorite ones that I've done in the past you know, year or so. I mean, I wish it was bigger, honestly. I do too. But there we go. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I get it. This is like a zine set. It is. And how many are you actually going to be doing? I'm doing nine. And when that's over, I'm not sure what will happen. Maybe there'll be a volume two. Maybe there won't. Maybe there'll be a Traveling Wilburys thing where I jump straight to volume three. There's no way to tell. It's a wonderful zine. Oh, thank you. It's beautiful. It's available for $8 on my Etsy shop. I think there's a link on my Instagram, and we'll have a link in the show notes. There we are. When we don't have zines, we talk about our own zine. Or if you know people who have recently finished zines, let us know. We'd like to review them. Uh, we would, you know, obviously trade or pay outright for them. We're really interested in what's going on in zine. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can head over to patreon.com slash lens. We've got bonus episodes, full-length interviews, and a growing number of things. And so since the last episode, we've had two new Patreon subscribers. We have Hans. And Michael Dodds. Thank you both for joining us on Patreon. And this episode's featured patron is Juliet Schwab. Ooh. Now, I've been following Juliet for a long-ass time. Like, well before the podcast. Juliet is from Washington State, but now lives in Washington, D.C. She is a woman of two Washingtons. I think recently she paid a visit to the Evergreen State, and there's a bunch of photos here from that on our feed on Instagram. Her handle there is just simply Juliet Schwab. We'll have a link again in the show notes. She mostly shoots black and white. A lot of it's, a lot of it's family, but it's not like your typical family vacation pictures or holiday snaps or anything like that. She's got a very unique take. There's always... There's often some religious undertone to it. She just has a very good eye for catching the, and I don't mean this in a bad way, that the normal that you see when walking around. Mm -hmm. She can really detail, like there's one I'm looking at here of, I believe it's, I think it's a trail that's kind of filled with water and she captures it really well. I I couldn't do something like that. I've I've tried. (laughs) I I think I know where this was taken. And I've tried to do similar things. I just can't do it. She has beautiful color shots too. She does. She has very beautiful color shots. What she does with color is... Pretty amazing. A lot of beautiful like nature shots and flowers, a lot of greenery, um, but also again, like her black and white shots. It's like a good mix between nature and nurture. Because she's got a lot of a lot of portraits. She does. A lot of really wonderful family shots. It's it's really just great to see everything she does. And the macro stuff too. And just yeah. some wonderful things of, of, well, there's some dinosaurs, there's some stuff in DC. It's really just a fun account to follow. I think so. So thank you, Juliet. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah. And keep shooting. We are loving what you got. And if you don't follow her, she's at Juliet Schwab on Instagram. And that is about all the podcasts we have for you today. And we'll remind you once more about the answering machine question, which is... What is the most important thing for you to remember when you're shooting? That's a good question. It is. Yeah. I like that one. I do too. Thank you. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail. And we're at allthroughalens on Twitter. Vanya is at surfmartian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag allthroughalenspodcast to be featured. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode. So check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search all through a lens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell else you find your podcast. Subscribe and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so, so much for listening. We love you and we will see you in a couple of weeks. Vanya, 
Yes? Do you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Right, let's go! <laughs> Perfect. Great. Please stop. Stop snoring. <laughs>